seated. Good morning. It's good to see you today. It's good to share warm fellowship and warm worship on a cold day, isn't it? So we're glad you're here. Today I'm beginning a series of sermons from Matthew chapters 5 through 7. This is a passage that for many years Christians have called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the largest continuous block of Jesus' teaching in all of the Bible. 107 verses where Jesus teaches us. And he teaches us in this passage about how to live. This is about Christian ethics, behavior. How are we supposed to live as followers of Jesus? Well, Lord willing, we're going to spend the next 13 weeks going through this sermon, passage by passage, to understand how Jesus wants us to live. Today, I want to share with you an overview, an introduction to this sermon, so we sort of get the big picture before we begin looking at the specific uh, passages and going through it. And so my prayer is that you'll be with us in these weeks and in these next 13 weeks, we'll come to a greater understanding of how Jesus wants us to live out our faith in our day-to-day lives. So... We're going to begin with the context of this sermon. Uh, you see, one of the things that are people mistakes people make a lot of times when we read the Bible, we just read a passage without understanding that it has a setting, a context. And so when you read a small passage of Scripture, one of the ways to help you understand it better is to broaden out and, and get the context of its setting. So before we look at Matthew chapter 5 through 7 in our introduction today. Let's back up a little bit and understand how it fits in in the Gospel of Matthew. The first couple of chapters of Matthew are the Christmas story. We spent some time there in December. And then the context of this sermon in Matthew 3 verses 1 and 2 is in the context of repentance, of repentance. To prepare the way for Jesus, God sent John the Baptist. And it says in Matthew 3, 1 through 2, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So the first context of of this sermon is the ministry of John the Baptist and repentance. And so what, what we need to understand first is that we need to change. Uh, the, 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 the beginning point to understand the sermon is that we can't live life like we've always lived before. We've gone our way, and now God calls us to go a different way. And every one of us needs to repent. And so it's on the basis of repentance that Jesus tells this sermon. And then in chapter 4, Matthew 3 is about repentance, telling us when you're, you're ready for this sermon, when you understand I don't need to live my way anymore. I need to turn and change. Then Matthew 4 is the ministry of Jesus, and it's about the kingdom of God and discipleship. Uh, And so let me read just a few verses. Matthew 4, verse 17. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so Jesus continues John the Baptist's emphasis on repentance, that there's got to be some change in your life when you follow God's way. You can't live the same way. And he begins to introduce this idea of the kingdom, that he's the king and he wants to set up his kingdom in your life. And down in verse 19 it says, he said to some folks, come, 
follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. So it's in the context of discipleship that this sermon comes. And then in verse uh, 23, one more verse from chapter 4 about this context, uh, Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness from among them. So the point is that this Sermon on the Mount is for disciples. It's for people who have repented of their sin and now want to follow Jesus, that he's king of my life. And so it's in the context of being a follower of Jesus. You see, that's important because the Sermon on the Mount, some people want to say that that this is all Christianity is. Just these commands in the Sermon on the Mount about be good. Treat your neighbor as you'd like to be treated. They want to distill Christianity to just this advice. But this advice of the Sermon on the Mount is only in the context of I'm a disciple. I repent of my sin. I put my faith in Jesus. Only then does he give you the power to be what this sermon calls us to do. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him. So he's teaching the disciples, but there's a lot of crowd listening in. So if you're a disciple of Jesus today, this is how we're going to look at in these next weeks how we're supposed to live. If you're a part of the crowd, we're glad you're here. We hope you'll listen in because we hope you'll be attracted to Jesus and to the Jesus life as you hear this. And it says he went up on a mountain and sat down to teach. And that's where we get the title for this called the Sermon on the Mount. Luke has a version called the Sermon on the Plain because it says he went down to a level place and taught them. And it's 30 verses as opposed to 107 verses. I think Jesus taught this. This was some of his themes that he taught over and over. This time, he taught it on a, on a mountain near the Sea of Galilee, another place. And Luke tells about when he taught it in a different setting, a shorter version. What's the theme of this sermon? What's it about? If I had to sum up the Sermon on the Mount in one word of what Jesus is telling us about how to live as his followers... I'd choose the word different. It's live differently. Jesus in almost every paragraph of this sermon says, if you're going to follow me, when you repent and become my disciple, you're going to have to live a different life. And folks, I don't know if we're living that out. And so we're going to look at that these next weeks and, and say, am I living differently the way Jesus calls me to live a different life? I want to go through it and show you some of it. Just in almost every paragraph, Jesus is saying, you've got to live differently. Let me show you in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says you've got to live different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees emphasized, they, have, they were big on living differently, but it was all outer rules. And Jesus is going to say it's got to go beyond just outer behavior to some inner uh, motives. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I bet that surprised his hearers because they thought the Pharisees were keeping all the laws. They were doing a great job. Jesus said, you have to do better than that. Because they were only concerned with what people saw and God was looking at the heart. You've got to be different from the Pharisees, he says. Then in chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, let's look at another paragraph to see this difference. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he's going to repeat this pattern over and over of saying, you've got to be different from the Old Testament, or at least what people understood the Old Testament to be saying. The Old Testament, or at least the tradition of the Old Testament. You've heard it said, don't just... Don't commit adultery. Just, just don't do that act and you're okay. He said, but I tell you, you've got to be different from that. And it goes to the very heart of who you are. Look at another one. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, again, where he's emphasizing you have to be different. And when you pray, do not be like hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. He says you're going to have to be different from hypocritical religion. Some folks say, I don't like church, I don't like Christianity, it's all the hypocrites. Hey, you're going to love Jesus. Jesus said, what I'm teaching is far different from that hypocritical. It's different from the Pharisees and their outward religion. It's different from tradition. It's different from hypocrisy. You've got to live differently. One more in chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, another contrast. He says, you've got to be different from other religions. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because there are many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So in the way you pray, you're going to have to be different from other religions, from unbelievers. There's got to be some distinctiveness, some difference there. Do you you get the point here? The Sermon on the Mount is calling us to a different level, a higher level of living than other people. Are we following that? The sermon is so different, so radical, Jesus' demands are so revolutionary that sometimes we wonder, is this Sermon on the Mount practical for our lives? Because, I mean, folks, it's It's sort of out there sometimes, and we wrestle with how to follow it. Let me show you a couple of verses to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. How are we supposed to apply that? That's very different What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to apply that literally? Do not resist an evil person. If somebody uh, breaks into your house, is it wrong for you to resist them if they're going to do harm to your family? You see, we're going to have to wrestle with this sermon. This is a different way of living. How do you apply this? I'll give you another uh, example, just a couple of verses down in verse 42. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus says at face value there, give to anyone who asks you. Now, are we supposed to do exactly that? If we are, I'm sure not doing it because every week almost I have people come and ask me for help and sometimes I don't help them in the way they want to be helped. Does this mean if somebody asks you for your car, you're supposed to give it to them or your retirement fund, you give it to them? That's what it says. You see how we're going to have to wrestle with this different living that he talks about? How in the world does this apply in our lives? So what I want to do is take for a minute 
and go through sort of the history of interpretation to see how different groups or individuals have wrestled with applying the different demands of this sermon, just so you can get an idea. So we're going to do a little history of interpretation here, so you can just sort of uh, see how others have wrestled with it, and we're going to have to wrestle with it as well. One, the first way of interpreting or applying the Sermon on the Mount, the Anabaptists took a literal view. Now, we don't have Anabaptists anymore. They're a little bit forerunner of Baptists. You hear that in the name. They believed in baptism. A little bit more like the Mennonites today. But the Anabaptists in the time of the Reformation, 1500s, were a group that said, we need to apply as followers of Jesus this sermon literally. And so they did not resist evil people. Um, they did not, of course, take. they were pacifists, but they would not, engage in self-defense, um, They what do you do then? Well, they said Jesus died, then we're to die like him. We're not to resist an evil person. They didn't take oaths. They wouldn't swear in, in a court because it said that. And when it came to giving, they literally gave to anyone who uh, asked of them. So there are some who have tried to apply this sermon very literally. That's tough to do. Isn't it? Is that what Jesus really commanded us to do? I'm not sure this is the right way to do. In other places in the Bible, it says, if a man will not work, let him not eat. I think there were some times when they were refusing to give to people who did not work in the Christian community. So I'm not sure that's the right view, but, but that's the literal view. So then the Roman Catholic view traditionally has been a double standard for clergy and laity. You'll probably like this one. So the Roman, traditional Roman Catholic view was that the Sermon on the Mount applies for clergy, preachers, ministers, but not for laity. There's a double standard there. You probably like that one a little better, don't you, right? Uh, it's saying, oh, everybody couldn't do this, but only those special Christians who have taken a vow of commitment to the Lord, then it would be for them. And, and I don't see that Jesus in this sermon anywhere giving any double standards. We just saw the context of this sermon is of repentance and for disciples of Jesus. But that's one way that they've tried to wrestle with these revolutionary commands. And then Martin Luther in the time of the Reformation said, well, you, there's a double standard for private and public morality. And Luther, uh, the Anabaptists, were the same time, and he rejected that literal view, and he said, no, these commands, this is the way you ought to interact with people privately, give to anyone who asks you if somebody slaps you on the right, turn the other cheek, but we couldn't be expected to do that in our dealings with outsiders, this isn't the way you run your business, this isn't the way you live in the world. And the problem with that, well, first of all, we don't see that anywhere in the sermon, but it creates a double standard. And we've still got some of that in our society where you get the idea that all oh, this Christian stuff is just for your personal life, but it doesn't apply to politics or to business or anywhere in life. And I don't believe that. I think the, that, the, that Christianity is good, supposed to be lived out in every facet of your life. If it's true, it ought to be working in your business and in, your, in, in every area of your life and every area of the public square. Another way of dealing, of trying to wrestle with this sermon was the Lutherans. You might think, well, the Lutheran church would have the same view as Martin Luther. Not exactly. Lutheran church came to, to wrestle with this to say, well, the purpose of this sermon is to just show us 
that we can't do this. That the sermon shows we cannot be righteous and it drives us to repentance and it drives us to say, God, I could never be what you're asking. I need your mercy. I think there's some truth in that. When, you, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, it should drive us to the mercy of God and say, God, I, I need your help. I can't do this. But I don't think that we can reduce the whole sermon just to say, and it's to show us how bad you are and that you need Jesus. Uh, he, could, he could tell me that in a lot less than 107 verses, you know. Uh, I think he's giving specific guidance here. So while that might be part of it, we can't reduce the sermon to saying it's just to tell us you're not very righteous. You're never going to be like this. You need mercy in the, in the grace of God. The, the fifth way of looking at it, or, or a fifth way of looking at it, is a group called dispensationalists. Uh, dispensationalists believe there are different time periods or dispensations where different things apply. The old Schofield Reference Bible, if you have a Ryrie Study Bible, it reflects the dispensational view. And the classic dispensational view is the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to us today. It's only for the millennium. They focus on where it talks about the kingdom that this is kingdom living. And so this is only when Jesus comes back and sets up his millennial kingdom. Then you could turn the other cheek and give to anyone who asks you and not resist an evil person. But it doesn't apply now. So it's a pretty convenient way of getting out of all this. You just throw it forward to some future realm. I don't believe that's what Jesus intended. I don't believe he was giving us Matthew 5 through 7 and it has nothing to do with our lives here today. I do believe it's for kingdom living. Where I differ from this view is I believe that the kingdom has come to those who acknowledge King Jesus and so he wants to set up his rule now in our lives and it is going to spread worldwide and he is going to bring it in fullness at his second coming but now he expects us to do kingdom living. So I don't think any of these uh, are an adequate explanation. You say, well, why'd you bother telling us all about that stuff for if you don't think any of it's a, a good explanation? Because I want you to see that Christians throughout the ages have tried to apply this sermon and it's hard to do. And we need to wrestle with that in our lives as well. There's one other view that I think contains some truth. It's called hyperbole. Hyperbole means deliberate exaggeration to make a point. And so this view would be that Jesus is deliberately saying some shocking things to make the point. When Jesus says, give to anyone who asks you, that he's using the device of hyperbole to say you need to be radically, revolutionarily generous. It may not mean that you give your home or your 401k to anybody who walks down the street and asks you for it, but it means he's using hyperbole to say, if you're going to follow me, you need to be radically generous. And when he says, do not resist an evil person, that he is not saying that if somebody is about to kill a child, that you're just to stand back as a follower of Jesus and watch that child be abused, but it is saying, and don't resist an evil person, that you're to be radically non-retaliatory. You're to be a person of peace so radical that you do not take vengeance and revenge. Let me show you a verse where you can sort of see this view, I think, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. We're going to look at all of these in more detail, but we're getting the big picture now. Matthew 5.30, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Now, you could probably see there how Jesus is, is probably not advocating the mutilation of our bodies, right? 
that is, if, if you're a thief, cutting off your hand is probably not going to prevent you from being a, the mind of a thief, is it? Uh, it might slow you down a little bit. But, but what Jesus really is saying there is, if there is any temptation in your life, it's better, for you to, it's better for you to take some radical action and do away with something in your life than have any spiritual danger in your life, right? So you sort of see how that's working there? I think there's some truth in this view. But, I, but my only resistance is I don't want to water this sermon down anyway. Anyway. I want it to stand with its rugged, revolutionary teaching and for us to wrestle with it. What is Jesus calling us to do as he calls us to live differently in our world? And how can we do that? So we're going to wrestle with that uh, in days ahead. Here's the ultimate verse. I'll give you one more. Matthew 5, 48, where Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Be perfect or mature, complete as your heavenly Father is complete. Are you ever going to be perfect? No. But does that mean that you shouldn't be striving toward what Jesus wants you to do? Niebuhr called it an impossible possibility. We know we're never going to be all that this sermon proclaims, but let's not just try to make up an excuse as a double standard or some future age or in some way water it down. Let's, let's say, Jesus, you called us to be different, and we're never going to be completely like you, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, with your help, with your work within us, we're going to live different lives and witness to a world that this is truth. Well, if it's, if it's so hard to follow Jesus, why should you follow him? If what we're going to see in the next 12 weeks is radical living that causes us to really wrestle with some questions and it's going to be hard to do and you're going to have to go against the flow and swim upstream and treat people differently in our relationships than everybody else does. You've got to be different from hypocrites and different from other religions and different from legalists and different from tradition. Then why should you be a follower of Jesus and live the kingdom life? Well, the close of the sermon, let's look ahead before we begin and let's get the close. Jesus' invitation. And in the final verses of the sermon, Jesus boils it all down to two ways. And here's why he says it's worth taking the Jesus way. It's hard, but it's the only road that leads to life. Why follow Jesus if it's hard? Because it's the only way that leads to life. Let me read you some of Jesus' conclusion in Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus says it's going to be tough following Jesus. It's going to be tough following him. It, it's a narrow way, and the gate's small. But it leads to life. And so he says, you can live the easy way, and you can live like everyone else. Or you can go through the narrow gate and go the hard way. Why should you? Because it's the only road.
that leads to abundant life and eternal life. I want to tell you about two roads in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I love the Smokies, spent a good bit of time there. On the western end of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, leaving from Bryson City, North Carolina, is a road called the Road to Nowhere. It's a wide highway with guardrails and, and, and plenty of room. It goes six miles from Bryson City, and it ends at a ridge, and there's a tunnel cut through that ridge for 100 feet, a nice wide tunnel. You can walk through it, and you get to that end of that tunnel, and it's just forest. There's nothing you see, when Fontana Lake was built, they flooded Highway 288, and the federal government promised the people of that region they had rebuild that highway. It went to some family cemeteries, and so they started, and they built six miles of the highway, and then funds ran out, ran into some environmental problems, and so they just stopped. And so now, you have this broad, wide highway with guardrails and center line. Six miles, it just ends in a tunnel through a mountain with forest on the other side. It's a road to nowhere. And some of you may be on a road to nowhere. And your life's pretty easy and it's going pretty good. But where does it end? On the other end of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, on the eastern end, is another road. It's not a, a good road. It's a winding road. It goes over Catahoochee Lead. It has switchbacks, had narrow hairpin curves. But when you drop down off of Catahoochee Lead, it opens up into a valley of Catahoochee. And there are little churches there and historic homes from a century ago and there's broad meadows and this is where the park reintroduced elk and there are elk in the meadows and turkey and deer and it's a beautiful destination. It's a hard road to get there. It's not a good road but it leads to a beautiful destination. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's two ways to live. One of them's easy, broad wide. It's like everybody else. But would you think about where it's going? There's another road. It's the road of following Jesus. It's a narrow gate. It's a tough way. You will have to be different from other people. You'll have to wrestle with some radical demands upon you to be perfect as the Father is perfect. Why should you take that rugged, narrow road? Because it leads to a beautiful destination. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, I want to pray for those of us who are your followers, who have taken the Jesus road. And I pray over the next 12 weeks as we learn how it is you want us to live, that you will teach us and that our ears will, and our hearts will be open, and that we will not be like everybody else, that we'll begin to live differently and so bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, I pray for those here today who have not started this road, who are at that gate contemplating how to live, and I pray, Lord, that you'll help them to look and see the road that leads to life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Would you stand together?